everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. I was about to commit suicide. That moment, I was about to jump out the bridge. And my way towards the bridge in Atlanta, a car pulled up. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to Conversations. Could you imagine what it would be like to be homeless just for one night? My next guest doesn't have to imagine, because he was homeless for years. But his life journey has brought him from homelessness to becoming an advocate for the same population he was a part of. My name is Alameen Muhammad. I'm the founder of We Rise Above the Streets Recovery Outreach. Alameen, thank you so much for being my guest today on Conversations with B. Moore. It's an honor to have you. Yes, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate you for having me. Thank you. I want to start, because you're doing some really significant things in the Syracuse community, but I want to take it back to your beginnings. And mm-hmm. I know that you come from the city of Chicago. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing in the city of Chicago. And I've been to Chicago. I'm actually from the Midwest myself. Oh, wow. Midwest? Yeah. Yes, That's sir. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, wow. <laughs> Cleveland. That put a smile on my face now. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm originally from there. Yes. But I've been out to Chicago a few times. And, okay. you know, it's kind of like, the way I see Chicago, it's kind of like a tale of two cities. Mm-hmm. Because you have the Chicago's that people go to and it's very touristy Mm -hmm. and it's very upscale but then you have the other side of Chicago. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, it's it's really different because you can kind of be in one world Mm -hmm. and be completely separated from the other. Right. Wow, Brian. You're the first person that ever said that. I'm serious because a lot of people seem like they're afraid to recognize both sides. You know, I didn't talk to people who've been to the beautiful tourist side and I had people to talk about the south side and west side where all the violence happens at but this is actually this is my first time ever ever heard somebody describe both sides and I thank you for that for recognizing that um, I'm originated from Chicago Illinois yes and um, my parents came from Haiti I'm Haitian and um, they moved to Chicago in the 70s and um, my parents was very very um, what kind of strict and, you know, it, it was a good strict, you know, to make sure we was grounded and make sure that we get our education. And to make sure my father was a type of father always taught me to be a man and be the man of the house and do what men needs to do for their family. As I was growing up, I was raised in a Catholic school, went to a Catholic school, and, um, and had good grades and going back and forth from home, um, helping my father cut grass, you know, help my father in any way that he needs me to. Mm-hmm. So um, during that time, my parents was going through um, problems, and my father became kind of violent to my mom, and one day my mom decided to tell that she wanted to leave and move to the north side of Chicago and divorce my dad. And when she did that, I didn't really truly understand why she was doing it as a young child, me and my sister and them. So when she finally separated, I had lost something that that I didn't know I was going to lose. And I was like alone as a child. And what was that? Was that the love for my father and love for my mother. My father had that strong father and that mentor. And my mama had that comfort and always there for me, you know. And that separated away from me. It was stripped away from me. And my mom was trying to hold my father's position. And um, it didn't work, you know, it didn't work. I had a stepfather, he tried his best too, good man, but it didn't really work. So um, I was so desperately to find that love. And remind you, that's a lot of love young man is trying to find in the street of Syracuse and other um, metropolitan cities as well. And I was trying to find that love, and I found it in the streets. Mm-hmm. I found it joining the gangster disciples in Chicago. And I found it through selling drugs and and um, inner, um, being with different type of women and, um, and, be, and, and saw myself became a gang leader in Chicago, you know, um, overseeing over thousands and thousands of people, you know. And um, I've been through so much violence, been shot. I was shot twice. I was pronounced dead, um, been in and out of prison. Um, I had hits. People are looking for me, you know, because you know, when you have a, a top rank in Chicago, there's other rivalry gangs 
want to look for you so they could get that juice, you know, because they got you. So um, I was blessed that I haven't got got. You know, I was, you know, weaving and wiving through the city of Chicago. So um, I seen so many of my friends died and passed away, people I grew up with, and people who had potential to be something, you know, although we made bad choices, but I saw greatness in them. And they, and and they've been shot and killed as well, mm-hmm. so it came to a turning point one year that I decided that then I became like twenty twenty seven, almost thirty years old, and I've been through craziness in that city. So I told um, I went to prison, and when I got out of prison, I told myself that I wanted to do a transformation of my life, just to start over, you know, get away from Chicago, and um, I moved to Atlanta. So when I moved to Atlanta. Um, I found I found a job, and I was staying at a hotel, and I was really sheltered, you know, be be to myself, trying to find who I was, and it was really really hard trying to find out who I was because Atlanta is a city that you're trying to soul search, but you got so much um, influence, you got so much desire around you in the city of Atlanta, so it was very very difficult. So um, I was loving my job. It was like a year, and I met a friend in that hotel. He was from Chicago. And I found out he was selling drugs at the hotel, and I was trying to ignore that, but just become a friend of his and continue to work. So it was one terrible moment that uh, that I went to work, and they they lay off everybody that day. And I was really, really hurt, because it was the first job I ever had, and I loved it. And I loved all the people, my peers, people I work with, and the boss. And some other company had bought the company out and they lay off everybody mm-hmm. so I was really kind of upset and I was like wow what I'm gonna do I got this hotel I had money saved up to get my own apartment and I thought I was gonna move up in a position at the job so I was really kind of confused so I went back to the hotel and I started doing more drugs with my that, uh, my friend from Chicago and trying to figure out what I was gonna do so I made a stupid mistake and started selling drugs again and Remind you, Brian, that Chicago and Atlanta is different laws. You know, um, it's that Jim Crow law in Georgia, and then you got um, the law in Chicago. Right. I didn't know that. So okay. when I was in Atlanta, I started selling a lot of drugs, and I started getting in that same respect I had in Chicago, but it was a little more higher respect because you from Chicago and you bought something down here, and uh, you know, et cetera. Sure. So, so um, um, I was living the Atlanta life. Um, I was doing security for a lot of celebrities. Um, I was um, in and out of jail there, but I was getting bonded out quick because I had money. Till one episode happened with me and the guy from Chicago, who was like good friends. I thought he was my friend. He was like, man, real tight. And one day I was at my apartment, one of my apartments in Buckhead in Atlanta, and um, I went upstairs to a, a, a girl's house I knew that I was stashing drugs at. So she was looking out the window when I was talking to her, and she had this little pale um, look in her face. And I didn't know what was going on. So I walked to the windows, and I seen undercovers putting masks on. They came inside the apartment. They kicked the door, my apartment door in. I'm upstairs real nervous. And it took them about four or five hours before they left. Went downstairs, saw a warrant, and they was looking for me. Mm. And um, it was drugs in the house. The drugs was gone. So I got kind of paranoid and... Um, they want to turn myself in, and until um, I find out, they went to Chicago look for me over my mom and my dad's house. So um, I, I waited a couple of days to turn myself in, and I finally turned myself in, and I was facing like 20, 25 to 40 or something like that years in prison, all because of my record, and, um, and they caught a large amount of drugs, and they said they had me on camera and everything. So if, if I turned myself in, and when I and um, I've been in jail several times. I I, I, I um, through my life since I was young, probably like 22 times, almost 30 times. I've been in out of jail. I've been sentenced like at least about five, six times. You know, to do time. The longest time I did was like 15 years in okay. prison in Chicago. So when I was in jail, my parents got me lawyers and everything. And um, Brian, it seemed like it was a different time from the other time I was locked up. It seemed like when I got locked up this time, it seemed like I found who Alameen was. I did some real soul searching, some self-inventory about myself. I was rewinding the tape back of everything I went through and the things I did was wrong. And some of the things I did, I was blessed to overcome it. And I found a lot of gifts about me, man. I found out I love flowers. I found out that... um, 
that I was I was reading well now. I was writing poetry in there. It was a lot of stuff I was finding about me. And there was a guy on my cell. He was always coming with that religion stuff, and I was really being evil to him until I want to hear that stuff. So one day he told me, he was he, he was watching me look um, looking at my pictures of my daughters and them, and he looked over the bunk bed and said, "Can I ask you a question? Please don't go off on me." He said that um, every night you look at your picture at your, your daughters, and you always um, go to sleep well when you look at them. He said. If something happened to you today, and I'm asking that question by myself, what legacy will you leave for your kids if something happened to you? And I couldn't even really answer that. Right. And I answered that in a couple of hours to myself. I'm like, it's the only legacy I could leave is like your dad was a gangbanger, a drug dealer, and he hurt people. And that really, really saddened me. I, I, I crashed the depression like for weeks. Didn't want to get out of my cell. Guards was like really trying to pull me out. I didn't have fights in there. It was all because of depression. Now, I want you to um, really catch on what I'm saying when I say depression because uh, I'm going to talk about mental illness sure. as long as the story. Okay. So the guy finally came to the room one morning. He said, brother, can you come with us to this table and listen to our religion and listen to us speak about our stories and see if you like it. If you don't like it, you can walk away. So I, I, I finally left the cell. And I've been in the cell for like weeks, man, without showering or nothing. And the guards really dragged me in the shower, and it, um, it, it was that mental mental um, illness kicking in, kicking in. Sure. So I went up, went to the table and sat down, and I heard him talking. I heard him re reading some book, and, um, and I was trying to comprehend the book. And I heard people sharing their story and telling them their story about how this religion saved them, and where they at right now, and. Um, and, and and I was constantly coming every day. It seemed like I was hungry for it. And it was Islam. And um and I finally accepted Islam in prison. And that was, and that was one of the most beautiful things that I ever did in my life. Cause when I was doing the soul searching in there, that right there really found out who I was. I found I really I really found out who I really was. Because sure. I dropped off everything that I did, gang activities, thinking crazy. And I was thinking number positivity and thinking about my future and thinking about that there is a creator. And, and, and this is how I feel that at the end of everything that I am going to be judged of what I'm doing. And sure. I'm going to face somebody, right? Yeah. So, so um, I was loving the religion. I was planning. I told myself when I get out, I know I ain't going to sell drugs. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going back to the streets. I had to have a plan, you know, and I was writing a lot of stuff down that I wanted to do when I get out. And nonprofit was one of them that I want to help people who struggling, who who struggling through gang violence and who struggling through drugs and addiction. And I felt I had the tools and information to prove the quality of people's lives. So I finally went to court, and the brothers told me that whatever happened, you know, just face it and just do the time and continue the plan before you get out. Can you believe that when I got out, they gave me, I did one year serve and they gave me nine years probation? Yeah. Can you believe that? And and now I believe it because I know it was the creator. You know, that was another chance for me to get out. Sure. So I got went back and told the brothers and everybody, they were shocked as well. It was like, wow. So I ended up finding out that the apartment was not under my name. They kicked somebody else's door in and they had false information and money was tampered. Money was missing. There was so much stuff going on. With the case, you know, right. they, they just threw the case out and it's gonna be. See, think about in Chicago, they would have threw the case out, never gave probation. But in Georgia, they got to get something out of you mm. in the South, you know what I'm saying? So they gave me probation, okay. you know what I'm saying? So I was about to get out. Mm -hmm. So I had my mind straight. Um, I was I was connected to a beautiful religion. My 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 um, my health was good. Okay. And when I got out, um, I didn't know I was going to face when I faced the world. I didn't know I was going to face so much trials and tribulation. I became homeless. Um, when I got out, um, I was trying to learn how to be homeless, learn how to go to agencies, and learn to panhandle. It was kind of hard over the several years because I had so much pride. I was like, man, I was a dough boy. I was selling drugs. Now I'm out here begging. You know, I, I was fighting yeah. battles. Like, how can I got myself in this position? I'm not going back. I'm going to continue to pray, continue to go to the mass here, and continue to stay connected. So, um, years went past. Can you believe I was homeless for 10 years? Wow, 10 years that transpired from the time that you got out mm -hmm. 
Now, this is all taking place in Georgia and Atlanta. In Georgia, yeah. This is a pipe in Georgia. I, 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 I was homeless for 10 years in Georgia. So much that happened to me when I was homeless, you know, slept under bridges, ate out of garbage cans, um, slept um, in the middle of the um, side of the highway. Um, I was invisible. People was nasty to me. Um, and that's when it, um, the PTSD hit me. I didn't know that. Depression turned to major depression. Um, I was I was used to people telling me that I was nothing. I would never amount to be nothing. I started believing that, you know. So one day, um, I was sitting in a bus stop in Georgia, and um, a guy rolled up and tended windows, jumped out. It was a Chicago guy. He couldn't believe how I looked. He was like, "Bro, why you why why you ain't calling me when you got out? I know you was like, why are you looking like this? Why are you you on drugs?" And he gave me some money and told me to get in the car. He was gonna put me back on my feet. And I denied it. And he kept arguing with me, come on. And then he threw a, he threw a can of beer at me, and beer spilled all over my face. Mm. Now, he was living, he, he went back to the street life. And yeah. And he t- drugs. Right, right. And, 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 and I ended up finding out during my case in jail how I got caught in the police camp because he told on me. He got caught with a, um, a large amount of drugs on the highway, and they said, if you, if you, um, uh, tell on somebody with more drugs, we give you less time. And he and he told on me, you know. Mm. So so I saw him, right? You know, and right. I was kind of angry what he did to me. But sure. I was Muslim, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to forgive him and try to get him away from me. But he got mad and threw a can of beer at me. Beer spilled all over me. That moment, that moment, Brian. That moment, I was about to commit suicide. Mm. That moment, I was about to jump out the bridge. And my way towards the bridge in Atlanta, a car pulled up, and re- and um. The prior before all that, I had signed up in a couple of detox centers to get in, you know, really to sleep, you know, for a couple of months. Because a couple of detox centers in Georgia, when you're going in there, they'll try to get you alcohol and drugs, but you got a bed, free food, and all that. Sure. So one of the case workers rolled past and saw me walking. He's like, hey, we've been looking for you. Your name is on top of that list because you got to sign your name and, and to get in. So see, your name is on top of the list. We've been looking for you. Wow, get in the car. And I was like, now I was, now I was on my way to kill myself. So I got in the car, we rode up, he gave me some clothes, told me to jump in the shower. It was Memorial Weekend, it was that Friday. He said, I will talk to you Monday about steps you need to take so we could get you back where you need to be at. Just get some sleep and all that. Brian, don't you know that I woke up Tuesday morning and I and and all I remember is getting up, but I don't remember. That's how tired I was. So other people was in the in the detox center said, man, all you was doing is getting up, eating, and going back to sleep. And I was like, what day is today? It was like Tuesday. I was like, wow, I was supposed to meet up with the guy Monday. Mm-hmm. Why he ain't waking me up? So I was wondering. So I'm walking around this detox center for the first time, and I'm seeing people, classes, and other stuff. So I found his office, and he, and he seen me. He's like, come in. He said, you finally woke, huh? He was laughing. He was like, boy, you was tired. And I was like, yeah, I guess I was. Yeah. He said, have a seat. He's like, share your story. Tell me why you're here. And tell me, how can we help you? So I shared my story with Mr. Santos. That's what his name was. Mm-hmm. I shared everything like I was telling you. When I was done, he paused for a minute. He said, hold on. He walked out. He came back. And he was like, Alameen, you should never went through what you went through. He said, I'm very, very sorry. He said, I'm going to try my best to make sure you get off that situation you was in. Mm-hmm. And he said that, and I believe in you. And he said, one day you're going to help a lot of people with that story. And then I'm looking at him, I said, help a lot of people, man. I'm like, I don't even got a dollar in my pocket, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was like, all you have to do is just listen, and I guarantee you're going to become the situation you're in. That's what I do. I help people. So he said, stand up. I stood up. He ran around his desk. The man grabbed me, hugged me, looked me in my eye and said, please believe in me. I can help you. And kissed me in my cheek. That moment, I ain't never had nobody do that to me. He embraced me as a father. He embraced me as a brotherhood. He embraced me as a mentor. And I felt so good when I walked out of that office. I can't even still describe that feeling right now. It was like a feeling like I was somebody. Through all my life, people was telling me that I was nobody, and I started believing it. That moment, I told myself, I am somebody. So I went out to the world. I got my GED. I graduated from Atlanta Tech. I got my associate. I walked down the stage, Brian. I walked down the stage. I finally did something that I worked for and walked. And my parents flew to Atlanta and seen this. 
I finally got my own apartment. I finally got my own apartment, and it was mine. I was yelling for like about a week in that apartment. Every time I got in, I was yelling because it was mine, right? Right, right? You know, so I'm yelling like, "Wow, this is this is mine." So I started volunteering in different places, and I was and I met this 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 uh, organization called Open Door Community in Atlanta, and I started volunteering there and started embracing. It was Presbyterian Christians. And it was a white community, but there was activists fighting. With, um, they want to fight the death penalty. Um, they want to fight with police brutality and homelessness. That was their mission to protest and to be advocates doing that. So I was a part of their community. So they really needed me, and I started volunteering, and I started learning a lot about them, learning about African-American history, um, learning about homelessness, learning about violence. So they... Um, when I started volunteering, I was moving up in position in the community, volunteering. Mm-hmm. And all I was doing is going there to volunteer, and then during the days I was going back to the to the detox center that I graduated everything from, and I was um, doing um, peer groups there. Because I graduated and I got my associate from Atlanta Tech, and I became an addiction counselor. And, and I was doing um, uh, peer support groups and, and et cetera. So I'm going there and volunteering. I'm doing. I'm keeping myself busy. Mm-hmm. That's this is one of the tools people need to pick up when they overcome and try triple X like I did to keep yourself busy. Okay. So, so the owner of the nonprofit, he was a mentor of mine for 40 years. He was doing nonprofit in Atlanta. He he was part of the civil rights movement nice. and everything. So I was learning from him doing the nonprofit. And one thing he was teaching me was about community. I never understand about community. But he really taught me the steps. I'm talking about the steps of community, the power of community. So I'm sucking all that knowledge in, mm-hmm. and and um, and they needed me because I knew the homeless community. So they had me in a position of running the door when people was coming in, getting some e, get clothes, and communicating with um, the homeless community, stopping fights because people knew who I was, and people really respected me because they was like, man, this guy was just sleeping under the bridge with me. And now, if he could do it, I could do it. Right, right. So I was doing this, keep myself busy. So guess what, Brian? I got on Facebook one day, and I met this woman, and we became good friends, really good friends. And um, she was staying in Syracuse. She came to Atlanta and um, visited me. We talked, and uh, we got married. And as soon as we got married, I told her that I was going to stay in Atlanta. I can't move to Syracuse. Let's do the long-distance thing so we could figure out how we could be together. Sure. So she moved to, um, she went back to Syracuse, and when she moved back to Syracuse, it didn't last that long, the, the long distance stuff. So I left everything that I built in Atlanta and took the chance to move to Syracuse. So I moved to Syracuse, and I was in Eastwood, and I was telling her, I said, man, I'm trying to get into helping people, get into AA and A meeting so I could facilitate that. You know, how can I do that? I'm in Eastwood, look like nobody ain't. On drugs over here, it's like it's nice over here. Right now, what year was that when you moved to Syracuse? I moved there 2015. So, so one day I rode around um, Syracuse to get to know the city, and I was listening to NPR. And one thing really shocked me. I had to pull over and call them and see if I, I heard what I just heard. They said Syracuse was, was the poorest metropolitan city in the U.S. And I was like, why? Where? You know? So I called NPR. They was like, yeah. So they gave me statistics and more research to learn about it. So the next morning, I told myself, you know what? I'm going to ride around the whole Syracuse, and I'm going to find out what this property people are talking about. So I rode around Syracuse the next day, and I rode around downtown. I rode on the west side, south side, and I started building relationships, and I started meeting people, asking questions. And I was doing this constantly for a whole week. So when I, when I went back home, I told myself I needed to go to Sam Plus when it was open, and I needed to grab some sandwiches and make sandwiches and bring something out with me while I'm um, having a conversation with people, and I'm building relationships, you know what I'm saying? So... I was doing that, then I was doing that out, out the house, going out, serving every Monday, Tuesday, and I said I was going to do a Saturday because I was coming everything out of my pocket to, to feed the people. So um, one day I told myself that I needed to get an office because donations was coming to the house, and the landlord was like, you know, was not liking that, or was powder donations by the door every time. So I needed just to get an office so I could have donations to come there. So... Um, then I was speaking at churches. I was going to schools, and people. Some people, a lot of people, were saying that I was crazy. They was like, well, he talking about homeless people. Some people was like getting bored of my conversations, like, and people was ignoring me. People was uh, rushing me, 
okay, we understand. We'll call you and everything. So I was getting frustrated. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought about, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to let the community back me up. I'm just going to expose this problem that I've been seeing for almost a year. And people ignore me. It's like people ain't seeing nothing I'm seeing. So I'm going to bring the community together, and I'm going to bring them out to see what I see. So one morning I got up, and I said, that's what it is. I'm going to create an event. I'm going to let people come to the event, and I'm going to share my story, and I'm going to share what I see in the streets and give them statistics and everything. So I created Sam Okay. right? It started out with 10 people. It went to 20. Now, this is over the year, over the months. Sure. Then it got to 50 people. And then the 50 people, I was like, hey, it's going down now. You know, people, then a couple of people was being um, dedicated. They still here now. They was being dedicated. They believed in everything I was doing. They was helping me bring donations in, everything. So one day, um, I told myself, I'm going to have a cookout. I'm going to have a big cookout. You know, I, I'm going to have it at that park. I keep seeing people, homeless people at that park over there on Salina Adams next to the hub station called Billing Park. Okay. It's that black statue right there. So I told myself I'm going to have a, a cookout there, and I'm going to promote them, have a lot of people there. So remind you, again, I was having 50, 75. I had 100 people here, every blue moon. So when I had that cookout, Brian, and people know who I was because I was on social media. I was friend of people I don't even know. You know, you from Syracuse, boom, boom. I was trying to let people hear this message. Right. So I had that cookout, and... The first cookout I had, we served over 4,000 people, man. That's awesome. We served 4,000 in the homeless and the working poor. That's when our mayor was, in, was uh, running for can uh, mayor. Everybody, candidates who was running, they was there. Police chief was there, father. The whole community came. And the reason why they came, of course, you know, I, that's understandable. You want to come and see who's this guy, you know, bringing this cookout. And we hear a lot about him, you know what I'm saying? It was here. Sure. So a lot of people came. People was impressed. That was one of the best cookouts I had. And after the cookout, the numbers went up to 200 people here. You know, people start coming, families and everything, and so much that happened over that after that cookout. You know, 200 volunteers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The numbers start re rising, and people coming. I mean, different people from agencies, groups, religion groups. I'm talking about. I mean, so much beautiful people, and a lot of people come to the door and they have the misconception about homelessness and bums and all that. But when they come to Re Rise by the Street, their whole mentality changes. When they hear my story, they go out to the street, hear other people's story, and they're like, "Man, I don't believe I have that this thought that I had about homeless people since I came to this organization." So the organization is where it's at now. I'm doing a lot of speaking at SU. My interns coming. I'm talking about Brian. So much stuff is happening. It's like I'm in a journey. So one day it was real cold. Um, I'm talking freezing cold. Mm -hmm. We was going down the streets, passing out soup, sandwiches, and everything. I'm talking about when I mean it's cold, I used to go out there, my hands used to lock up on me. Oh, yeah. You know, that's how cold it was last year. And a lot of people is impressed. Like, I can't believe this guy is still out here with these people and they still helping the homeless in the winter. And, you know, the world we're in right now, people don't do that. You know what I'm saying? The world we're in now, people don't come out in. And death weather, right? Sub zero, yeah, sub zero out there and serving. So that really opened a lot of people's eyes. So one day I was in here on a Monday at this room right there, and I'm relaxing, and I hear a lot of commotions in the back, like equipment and something like that. People talking, I'm looking. And I said, "Man, I know I'm tired, man, but that woman look like Gail King, you know." She walks up. She said, "Hey, Alabini," right? I said, "Yes." Shook her hand, and she's like. She explained why she here. She heard the story because it was just an article on Syracuse.com that really got the attraction. That get to, that, that's the first introduction of me. Mm -hmm. Syracuse.com was the first people introduced me to the whole city of Syracuse and the whole world. Mm -hmm. And people supposed to press about that beautiful article they had of me. And Gail King seen it, heard it. She came. She's like, I'm from Chicago too. And 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 and, and um, um, uh, me and Oprah love what you're doing. And I came here and see if can we do a coverage on you about your work and everything. So I'm shocked. I'm like, I had to go get a drink of water. Right. I got Gail King, right? <laughs> Tell him, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, wow. So I said, yeah, we could do it. She said, oh, okay, you can sign a couple of paperwork. Because, you know, when you when you do um, interviews nationwide, it's steps you got to take. You know, you just don't put cameras out and start filming. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, so um, I did it. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And when they finally... Showed it. I was at home. They'll forget. It was the best interview I, I I did on camera. You know, 
So so um, when that was done, that's when everything blew up. You know, people and so much response of the community after that coverage. It was people on drugs say that they got themselves checked in because they had seen the coverage. People around the U.S. were sending me letters, and I was reading letters from people who was heard, seen that coverage, and thanked me for sharing this. They gave them hope. That was one of the best best experiences in my life. So after the coverage, numbers went up. Okay. That's when I'm doing all that speaking. Um, uh, we could be all day to tell you how many places I spoke in Syracuse and out of Syracuse. And a couple of months went past, and um, Keith, good friend of mine, professor of the SU, called me and said that he was impressed with what I did, and they wanted to give me the Social Justice Award. I'm like, wow. So um, March, is uh, it March? Yeah, March 19th, I went and accepted the Social Justice Award. It was a crowd. A lot of people came to support me. And that's when the um, deputy mayor walked in and gave me the um, Adami Muhammad Day that day. And that day I was really shocked. I said, wow, they're going to give an ex-gangster prison. I was like, wow, this is, I was like, this is amazing. You know, I was like, I got this award. And I was I was really on a high for like a week. I had to chill out for a week because I couldn't believe it. It was too much. Right, right. So after that moment, that's when I, my, um, I started working a little bit more harder. That's my real hard, you know. And during that time, I um, I take vacation time. I need to take it because doing a nonprofit, you got to take care of yourself as well. Right. You know. That's true. So um, this journey, Brian, I can tell you, has been one of the beautiful journey in the world. You know, the community of Syracuse is a beautiful community. This response of this work and, and the organization has been really overwhelmed. No, that's wonderful. And if you're just joining us, welcome to Conversations with B. Moore. I'm your host. My guest for today is Alami Muhammad, and we are talking about his organization, We Rise Above the Streets here in Syracuse. Tell me, in terms of, I mean, you've, you've done a beautiful job establishing the organization. Mm-hmm. You've gained momentum. Mm-hmm. Where do you see things going forward in terms mm-hmm. of where the organization goes, where the issue of homelessness Particularly in Syracuse, goes. yes, yes. Um, the organization is. I'm trying to find a building now, a big for bigger space. Obvious is get crowded in here. And I'm trying to um, have more, more uh, services in this location. For example, um, the homeless community working poor to walk in, they can sit down and eat good food, and the volunteers certain idea in a five star restaurant. And as soon as they done, they can get showers, get clothes, get shoes. Oh, I've got to tell you, we had a cookout. Uh, last month, I don't know if you heard of. We had a big cookout, and we was washing feet and giving brand new shoes and socks. I've got about to tell you about the cookout. I was speeding past. We just had a cookout last month, and um, we was washing feet and we was giving brand new shoes and socks. And it was different from the first cookout. Cause the first cookout we had a grill and a tent, but this one it expanded. We had a DJ, we had a uh, we had a cotton machine, we had um, popcorn machines. We was washing feet. We had agencies had um, vendor tables and everything. So this one was big. So 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 we talked about having in this facility this facility I wanna have is to have uh well, like I said, uh area they could eat and they get treated very well. They're gonna take a shower, get shoes, socks, um, clothes, haircuts, and have information they need so they could solve the situation they're going through, like jobs or SSI or, or we have a nurse on site, a doctor, because we got nurses and doctors on site under the bridge when we go out there and serve okay. um, every Saturday. You know what I'm saying? We got nurses out there. As soon as they're done, they're going to have a room they can sit and process their day. And I always wanted that room because I know how I feel when you go to some of these agencies. And here in Syracuse, too, that you go to some of these aid, they rush you. Mm-hmm. Here, come get this, get this, and we'll go out the door. So, so for them to be in this room and get their day, together and process their day, they could have volunteers there just to answer questions or to help them with any anything. That's going to be on Tuesdays and Wednesday. Monday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to have self-sufficient classes, NAA meetings, vocational classes, and we're going to have job-ready, you know, classes and other um, workshops, you know, like job interview, how, what to say, what not to say. And on Saturdays, we're going to continue to have Sam on Saturday. For people who's going through mental health illness, and I used to being around people and other people who used to come under the bridge and love that family setting, that 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 together setting. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So so that's my going further up with the organization. Now with homelessness, I'm gonna continue to fight and become an advocate for homelessness and trying to end homelessness and poverty in Syracuse. 
I'm gonna continue doing what I'm doing, um, speaking, uh, pushing political uh, 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 people to really look at this issue and, and, and take it real serious that we do have a problem here. And so far, it's working in my eyes, but if I constantly keep pushing it, it's, it's going to get solved. And the incident that happened in Dunkadonna, that kind of like really, really opened some eyes. Sure. And I want to definitely get to that incident at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, but before that, I want to kind of take it back, just in terms of Syracuse and the issue of homelessness. Mm-hmm. So if I have it wrong, tell me, B, you got it wrong. Okay, okay, no problem. <laughs> okay, but from what I understand, there's enough bids mm-hmm. to, to go around. But back to what you were saying about the whole mental health issue, mm-hmm. is that for certain, some individuals being in, in an environment where it's enclosed and it's structured, their mental illness just can't handle it. Yeah. And, and that's the issue. Yes. And how would you approach trying to deal with that aspect of the issue so that individuals that have difficulty in formal uh, settings mm-hmm. uh, can be more comfortable? You know, um, first of all, you got to educate the people, educate the brothers and sisters to let them recognize they have mental health illness. And to be honest with you, Brian, I'll be honest with you, pills is not the answer. They constantly, you know what I'm saying, uh, um, um, over-medicate people. You know what I'm saying? What's the answer is, is let them be engaged in art. Let, um, let them do some soul searching, eating healthy. There's a lot of steps you could go through to solve mental health illness. And, of course, make sure they take their medicine. Because some people take their medicine like I do, and that's all I know is take the medicine. And I'm over-medicating myself, and it's not like I'm getting more depressed. But if I had something to attach to that, like going to school, um, speaking about it, talking more about it, hearing stories, you know, that's what helps. That's what helps. If we apply that in a lot of shelters and a lot of other agencies, except putting that burial between our brothers going through mental health and homelessness and making them feel like they're not welcome, that's the energy that's going out there more than what you're talking about that you're trying to see, that, that I'm trying to see. The, the, the energy is being out there is putting, like, barriers in front of people and making them feel uncomfortable and, and rushing them out the door, you know. And they use all that negativity to turn to positivity and, 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 and do what I just laid out, you know. I guarantee you they will be helped because they worked for me. And, I do, and I'm doing the same thing out in the streets right now, yeah. and it's working. I mean, and for a person who don't have no certification in dealing with mental health people, you guys, any volunteer, if you come Saturday, they're like, man, you got any degrees for doing that? Because they listen to you. You know how hard it is to let somebody go into mental health illness, to tell them, no, you need to stop doing that, and without them going crazy? And the reason I know because I went through mental health illness, and I, I built a relationship with all these people. That's wonderful. Building relationships, that's what it's all about. Okay, okay. Now let's talk about Dunkin' Donuts. Yes. A few weeks ago... There was an incident that had happened at the Dunkin' Donuts on the north side mm-hmm. where the manager had, had poured water on a homeless individual mm-hmm. uh, captured by a fellow employee and posted on social media. Mm-hmm. I want to get your reflections on on the incident itself. And I think let's kind of talk about it, backpedal, and talk about it from the perspective of the actions that you took. Mm-hmm. And then I have some questions beyond what's taking place. Sure, sure. I was at home um, four in the morning. I get up and pray. And um, I got up a little bit. I went back to sleep. And I seen, and I won't even pay attention to my phone till I woke up about seven in the morning. And I seen all these notifications and calls and voicemails. So first thing I'm thinking about, somebody got hurt. I'm like, wow, who called me like this? So I seen the video. And I was like, I was really shocked, like, for a minute. But one thing everybody noticed was the bucket being poured on him. And, yeah, that's a horrified thing to do. Nobody don't deserve that, to be assaulted like that. But what I recognize, B, is the reaction of Jeremy. His name is Jeremy, of Jeremy, the reaction. And when I saw the reaction, how he was looking hopeless, how he was looking like he was about to give up, I had to rewind the tape. And I was in that position when I got that beer can thrown on me. You know when I told you that story? Yes. That's the feeling that, it, it, when I looked at him, I, I was in that moment, what happened to me when that beer can threw on me and how I felt. 
So I looked, I was like, wow, this dude got the same expression, same body movement, same that hopeless look. Man, and I got enraged. I went in there and put my clothes on, and I went straight to that Dunkin' Donut. When I went in there, I saw the employees in the front, and I said, please speak to the manager. But before I came there, I coached myself. I said, no, I'm not going to want to snap. I'm going to be nice, be kind, respectful to find out what's going on. So when I went in there, I asked my speech to the manager. They said, okay, we're going to call him. They tried to call him. They didn't want to answer. And they called him again. And they said, well, okay, we can't do nothing. And I heard somebody in the background laughing, you know. So I told him, I said, excuse me respectfully, you guys must not know me because I'm doing wonderful things in the community and plus the volunteers that be with me. Please don't let me take action because I can't. You don't know who you're talking to. Let me speak to the manager. All I want to do is speak to the manager to dialogue with us to figure out how can we not let this happen again. And I had some tools information for that just to talk to you. They didn't want to do it. So I walked off and I said, okay, no problem. Remember this moment. I left out, got on social media. I made a call in 30 minutes. Over 300 some people showed up. In 30 minutes, 300 people showed up. When I went and got my signs and changed my clothes, came back, it was people out there meeting me. So we probably protest out there, and I looked in there. I didn't really notice it. Like a half an hour later, we was protesting. I looked in there. It was like all managers. That's what I heard now. All managers, all the district in Syracuse came, I guess, to protect the place. So the guy who was laughing, I'm looking at his eyes wide open now. I warned y'all, you know what I'm saying, that I was going to do this. So we protest. The community was so beautiful. They bought donuts, shares, uh, drinks. Uh, I'm talking about it was so great. So I went in there again about two hours later, and can I speak to the manager now? The manager come out right away, and I was like, I'm sorry this had to happen, but all I want to do is talk. That's all. Now I can't. I had no control of all these media out there. There's over about five, six cameras, and people that drove far away just to get this coverage. You know, I can't do nothing about it, but I did tell you guys all I do is want to talk. So all she she was very nice. She was like, Well, we can't get no information out right now. It's under investigation. But we were sorry what we did and all that. So she apologized. Everybody else apologized. I walked out and I broke the crowd up. And we all left. So after that moment, that whole day was a bit, man. I'm talking about it was cameras all in front of my house. I don't know how to, how to know where I stayed at. Mm-hmm. Cameras in my house all around this office area. I'm getting phone calls from radio stations that I grew up looking at, um, listening to. And TVs, you know, from um, um, HLN. Uh, New York Times, it's so much. Um, every news channel in Syracuse interviewing, and, and, and it was an honor. And plus, getting interviewed by you as well, it's an honor to be getting interviewed to share my story and bring awareness what happened to Jeremy. So that later on, I talked to Jeremy. We talked. He was okay. He with his family. His auntie was in the crowd protesting with us, and she was kind of upset. We calmed her down. She, wonderful family. Wonderful family. So later on that night. Helen Hudson, great friend of mine, she's the common council president, common council. She called me that night, mm-hmm. and she was saying, "Can we talk?" Um, the guy who who runs the Dunkin' Donuts, he's a great guy. She was talking very highly of him. And to be honest, anybody else would have called me and told me to, to set a meeting and talk to him. I would never win. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm being real honest. The boycott right. probably would still be going on, right. you know. So she told me, "Can we talk? Can we sit and talk? Can you get to know him? You get to know you? Because both of you guys, I love, and I want this to be resolved." So we met the next morning, and doing that, I really didn't get no sleep because it was it was like a, a high in the city that week. I mean, you know that sure. it was like you know uh, uh, I couldn't get no sleep or nothing. You know, I'm and, and I was I was interviewing at one in the morning because it was different time zones in other states. You know, so that morning I went there and we went and I sat down. I met them, I shook their hand, we sat down and talked, we laughed. And that moment I told myself, I said, wow, I can never blame a group of people for one person to stay. These guys I'm sitting here talking about, they're the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts and the board. So kind to me, so nice. We had a good conversation. They, they did a lot of listening to me, you know. So he did look stressed out. I understand that. He said his family and him haven't gotten no sleep since this stuff happened. And I, I kind of apologized. Like, I'm very sorry for that. I had to do what I did. They understand that. Right. So... Helen Huston was like, so um, how are we going to solve this issue? Okay. And Bob, 
um, from corporate. He was like, how are we going to do it? So they realized, like, only person who can solve the situation is you, Alamine. Nobody else, you know? And I look, I said, oh, wow, you're right about that. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So we continued to talk. We talked about how we could have training uh, with Dunkin' Donuts. We talked about that to make sure that none of that don't happen again and get the employees to do more service work, you know, come do service work and get trained as to how to approach the situation, like I just said. And he said, how are we going to start this? I'm going to come myself. Now, we're talking about the CEO from, from he tomorrow. He want to come to Sam Saturday, Saturday, and, and, his, and his family and the rest of the staff at Dunkin' Donuts. So I'm like, okay, that, 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 that would be great, you know. And so we ended it. We hugged, and, and uh, we took pictures. So I went on social media about an hour later and put the picture of me and him and put something beautiful in it, and it went viral. Circuit.com got it, the news got it, and everything. So that's like heading to Saturday. So everybody's in the city like, wow, they coming to San Juan Saturday. It was like a really exciting moment for the city, you know. Sure. So Saturday came. This is the highest number we had in San We have 407 people here. 400, this Saturday just passed, 475 people here. Imagine from that room to out here in the hallway to all in the parking lot. Parking lot was so packed, man. It was ridiculous. To, so, to volunteer. Came here to volunteer and came to really to support me of what happened at Dunkin' Donuts and, and everything. So Dunkin' Donuts crew came. That's you know, and it was great. They came, made sandwiches. We took pictures. It was it was new media, news media's here. They had them all on camera and everything. You know, and um, it was a great, beautiful moment, man. It was a great moving moment. So we went outside. We had quick announcements after it was done. We made about seven hundred sandwiches. We um, had quick announcements outside. The, um, um, I do this every time. Fifteen minute announcement about where to go and what what needs to be done. We get out there, turn down the bridge, and share my story a little bit. So we went out to the bridge cameras, you know, they served, they donated 500 um, donuts to the homeless community. It was much more of, I can't speak about that, you know what I'm saying, you know, so, um, they're great guys, great guys. So that experience right there, what I learned from that experience, like I just told you, B, was don't blame a group of people for one person to stay. That's what I learned from those students. I learned a lot from that, you know. Definitely, definitely. So I, I want to ask you, I mean, that, that was just a wonderful example of how mm-hmm. an individual uh, can, can galvanize mm-hmm. people around an issue that definitely needed to be addressed. I mean, part of what happened as a chain of events, those two young men that were involved in that incident were, were fired. Mm-hmm. They lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would probably agree that rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that the family had sought to um, press charges, and I think the young man mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, the, that poured the water, at least him, I'm not sure about the other individual, but he's going he's gonna to serve community. Mm-hmm. He's going to do some community service. My question to you is beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, because, okay, now, now we've got two un- unemployed individuals, possibly and potentially they could become homeless themselves. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. what type of restitution, what type of, um, how can they redeem themselves? Yes. Um, my opinion, if they want to come do community service here, they're welcome. They can welcome to come do community service. And I did not go out there to for them to lose their job. I wanted them to come to educate themselves because somebody believed in me. Somebody really believed in me. And I was not perfect when I was growing up. And I understand um, where they're going through. And I wanted to be someone to help them, to share my story, to see if I could bring some light into them. That's what I wanted to do with um, both of them. So if they want to come here, the door is open here, and they can do the community service here. And for them to be homelessness, if they if it come to that point, and I hopefully they don't come to that point, and hopefully they can come through these doors and really sit with me. Okay. You know? That's great. You know, as I was sitting from 30,000 feet away <laughs> watching this transpire, that was one of the things that went through my mind in terms yeah. of, okay, well, you know, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we are, we've all done foolish things in our lives. Right. How do these young men yeah. redeem themselves? How right. Do they turn, how do they take their poor choices, mm-hmm. bad choices, right. obviously, 
mm-hmm. and turn it around for themselves. Right. There's a, that's a little bit more I have under my hat. I can't really talk about it right now, but I really want them to come here and we could go ahead and end this, this book and move on to the next chapter. Okay. Um, awesome. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. Yes. <laughs> so, kind of in closing, a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. One, so we rise above the streets. I mean, it, it seems like a very unique approach mm-hmm. and a very unique model. Do you believe it's replicable in other communities throughout this country, and how so, if it is? Yes, it is. Um, uh, we're talking about having a rise above the street in Atlanta and Chicago. We're working on that probably in 2020 that, that we're trying to apply that over there. And the reason why I know it's going to work because everybody has a story. A lot of people in this community right now around the world need someone that can speak their language. You know, when people overcome homelessness and overcome prison and try to reach out to people, and I'm not down to no one who got degrees and who be in this position to help people, but I feel you should have someone connected to you that lived that life, that really lived that life. And when you approach someone or encounter someone that who's been out of prison, who's been shot, and both of you guys can recognize each other's language and, uh, and recognize each other's story, and then you could turn that around and tell them, brother, this is what I did. Let me help you. Just like Mr. Santos did me. Mr. Santos did the same thing to me. And that's what I'm doing to a lot of brothers and sisters in the street of Syracuse. Nice, nice. So my final question to you is that, you know, there may be individuals who aren't aware of your efforts, mm-hmm. maybe even living in different locations right. throughout the country mm-hmm. that might hear this. What would be your message to any person, any mm-hmm. man or woman, who is either on the fringes of homelessness or, or actually experiencing homelessness? What would be your message to them? My message to them is that please don't give up. Continue to fight. Continue to get help. And don't be in denial. If you're going through something and you know that's a problem and that's setting you back, admit your problem and get help. And get help. You heard a story today. You hear this story. I've been through so, so much. So hopefully somebody is hearing this and they could tell themselves like, well, my situation ain't that bad. If you've been through this, let me go ahead and get myself clean. Let me go get myself help to get housing. Let me connect back with my family. My family been looking for me. Let me not end my life today because I got so much ahead of me. It's a wonderful message. Thank you. wonderful message. (laughs) Again, my guest for today has been Alameen Muhammad. Is the founder of We Rise Above the Streets. And uh, Alameen, I, I wish you the best in, in your endeavors going forward. You're doing wonderful work. Brother. Thank you, Brian. And we appreciate, appreciate it. it man. Appreciate <laughs> it. I love this, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely, man. man. My, my pleasure. Thank you. My honor. Yes, thank you. Thank you. To learn more about how to become involved with We Rise Above the Streets Recovery Outreach, you can contact Alameen Muhammad at 315 491 7164. His slogan is, if we eat, they eat. Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.